Like trains of cars on tracks of plush, I hear the level B. A jar across the flowers goes, their velvet masonry withstands until the sweet assault their chivalry consumes, while he victorious tilts away to vanquish other blooms. His feet are shod with gauze, his helmet is of gold. His breast a single onyx with chrysophis inlaid. His labor is a chant, his idleness a tune. Oh, for a bee's experience of clovers and of noon. That's a fascinating setting of the poem The Bee by Emily Dickinson by composer Emily Lau. And we heard Rebecca Harris, violin, Marion Maltabano, mezzo-soprano. It's from a piece called Six Dickinson Poems. And the instrumentation is violin, mezzo-soprano, and in the other poems, harp as well. We're going to hear Elizabeth Houston later on. I love that setting. There's something really fascinating about it. I like uh, the violin pizzicatos. I like the way the violin gives way to solo voice. And there's a fascinating lilt, almost an accent in the speech patterns in uh, that to my ear at least sound like they're from the UK, from, from Scotland perhaps, uh, in the soprano patterns as well that uh, I find quite fascinating. The B is one of many, many symbols in Dickinson that reappears. In fact, the Emily Dickinson archive says that a B appears in her poems or in the title of one of her poems almost 300 times, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead. We are just a few days shy of the 135th anniversary of Emily Dickinson's death. And I thought I would commemorate that uh, by playing music inspired by and uh, some direct settings of Emily Dickinson poems. Of course, normally we uh, commemorate the birthday of a great figure, but Dickinson was so fascinated uh, with death, one of her many, many recurring themes in her wonderful poetry that I thought in some ways it was more uh, appropriate almost to, uh, to commemorate the anniversary of her passing rather than her birth. And so I'm going to play a handful of pieces. There's so much out there, of course, so many people that have been inspired by Dickinson. But uh, of course, some of this is personal. I chose some of my own favorite poems and uh, settings uh, by different composers. And I wanted to provide a, a pretty balanced uh, you know, view of Dickinson because she had a lot of fascinations. And we hear a lot of that in this piece by Emily Lau. So I want to play all six of the movements now. They're very short. We're going to start with the first two, I Never Saw a Moor and the moon is distant from the sea. Right away, we have a couple of her uh, recurring fascinations here. I Never Saw a Moor is a short enough poem that, um, that I can read it. I never saw a moor, I never saw the sea, yet know I how the heather looks and what a billow be. I never spoke with God nor visited in heaven, yet certain am I of the spot as if the checks were given. It's a poem about faith. She's saying she doesn't need to see uh, heaven or speak with God to know that uh, God and heaven exist. It's a very simple poem, but I think quite powerful. And then the second poem, The Moon is Distant from the Sea, is one of uh, the recurring senior poems. She has many, many poems in which she talks about a senior uh, with love. Uh, members of her family thought that it might have been an actual person that she was in love with. A lot of scholars have rejected this. Uh, it is instead an idealized version of beauty, perhaps male beauty, uh, perhaps uh, a, a more godlike individual uh, from what I was reading, which I think is fascinating because in Spanish, uh, Senor is the word for God. She spells it in Italian, S-I-G-N-O-R, uh, but it's still a, a pretty fascinating idea. 
And the Signor appears in The Moon is Distant from the Sea. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. And this setting by Emily Lau is particularly beautiful. So let's hear Marin Montalbano, mezzo-soprano, Elizabeth Houston Harp, and Rebecca Harris, the first two movements of six Dickinson poems by Emily Lau. I never saw a moor, the moon is distant from the sea.
two beautiful settings of Emily Dickinson's poetry. We heard I Never Saw a Moor and The Moon is Distant from the Sea by Emily Lau. Let's keep it going. We're going to hear three and four, that it will never come again, and the grave my little cottage is. I think the, the fourth one, the grave my little cottage is, is, is kind of self-explanatory, very classic Dickinson. The third one is uh, is, is almost become uh, proverbial in some respects. It's it's a, uh, a, a thing that uh, people have said before Dickinson, but that particular phrasing where she says that it will never come again is what makes life so sweet. Uh, it's a beautiful sentiment. So here are Marin Montabano, Elizabeth Houston, and Rebecca Harris again to perform. That it will never come again is what makes life so sweet. Believing what we don't believe does not exhilarate. That if it be, it be at best an ablative estate. This instigates an makes life so sweet believing what we don't believe does not exhilarate that if it be it be at best an ablative estate this instigates an appetite precisely opposite
There's a real affinity for the text of these poems by Emily Dickinson in these wonderful settings by Emily Lau. I've really, really enjoyed listening to these. Uh, very glad I got to know them while researching this show. Let's finish it out now. The last two, I Shall Keep Singing, and then of course the B with which I opened up the program. I'm a big fan of I Shall Keep Singing. This is an affirmation in every sense of the word. Uh, basically, it's, it's a, a kind of homage to the late bloomer. Uh, she talks about, well, it opens up with her saying, I shall keep singing. And then she talks about birds will pass her on their way to yellower climes. Uh, but, but she'll keep on doing her thing, singing her song. And then she uh, references Roman Catholic liturgy. She says that the sounds of vespers are sweeter than matins. Vespers are the, the services for the evening. Uh, so again, this idea of a late bloomer being, um, you know, the songs are sweeter for the late bloomer than those who achieve early on. She references Signor again in this poem, but perhaps not this time in a sense of love, uh, but addressing a kind of male authority figure to say that, that I will endure. Uh, I love that sentiment very much. Let's hear what Emily Lau does with this text. On tracks of plush, I hear the level bee. A jar across the flowers goes, their velvet masonry withstands until the sweet assault their chivalry consumes, while he victorious tilts away to vanquish other blooms. His feet are shod with gauze, his helmet is of gold, his breast a single onyx with chrysophis inlaid. His labor is a chant, his idleness a tune. Oh, for a bee's experience of clovers and of noon. The final two of the six Dickinson poems by Emily Lau. We heard Marin Montalbano, mezzo-soprano, Elizabeth Houston, harp, Rebecca Harris, violin. Really creative settings of the poetry of Emily Dickinson. Let's turn to one of my favorite poems, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. I've always loved that line. It's macabre and uh, funny all at the same time. There's this is kind of sly humor to it. I would love to read the poem, but I found Robert Pinsky from the Poetry Foundation in Chicago reading it. So let's listen to him read it, and uh, then we're going to listen to John Adams's setting 
in harmonium. This is for orchestra and chorus. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove. He knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too, for his civility. We passed the school, where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun, or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill, for only gossamer my gown, my tippet only tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, to centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity.
I had to fade that down because it goes right into another movement. Because I Could Not Stop for Death from a larger work called Harmonium by John Adams. Very different kind of setting here, reverent kind of setting, uh, which uh, is, is appropriate in some respects. I, I do wonder because uh, I, I find a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor in that poem personally. But uh, hey, you know, it's, it's up to the composer, right? <laughs> Everybody's different. Uh, all of us creative people, uh, we always quibble with everybody else. At any rate, it's a very beautiful setting by, by John Adams. It's interesting because I was reading that it's a very typical uh, or typical of his uh, minimalist quote unquote era. And yet I don't think so. It sounds nothing like Nixon in China. I mean, it's obviously Adams, but um, yeah, it's it's more the Adams of, of his 9-11 uh, uh, homage or something. Uh, it's it's, a, it's a, a much more hushed kind of reverent tone than I would have thought of if you told me it was going to be minimalist Adams. So far, I've played pieces that were direct settings of Dickinson poems, but I want to turn to something more abstract. This is a piece of chamber music inspired by the great poem, Musicians Wrestle Everywhere. It's by Judith Weir. And I want to say that Dickinson was herself a great musician. Uh, she was uh, probably a child prodigy. She was playing the piano from a very young age. And uh, she was especially gifted at improvising. Of course, she was not the type of person who wanted to perform or have any kind of career as a performer. In fact, uh, later on in her life, uh, people who stayed in the Dickinson home would hear her playing late at night. And that was about the only chance anybody got to hear her play. But by all accounts, she was a gifted musician. Music figures largely in her work. Uh, she's constantly talking about music in many of the different poems. And in Musicians Wrestle Everywhere, she seems to be going back to the idea of Pythagoras, of the music of the spheres, um, or Tolkien, if you ever read The Silmarillion, it opens with the universe being sung into existence. This idea that uh, there is music at a kind of atomic level, uh, but it is also a spiritual concept. Uh, the, the music itself, sound and tone, the music around us is part of God's plan. Uh, that's definitely, of course, uh, Dickinson would never state it so plainly, um, but that, that is a, a big theme in this poem, Musicians Wrestle Everywhere. And Judith Weir, when she was writing the piece, decided that she wanted to try and transcribe the sounds around her uh, rather than being inspired by folk song traditions, which she had been doing Prior to this, and then she discovered the Dickinson poem, which she says seemed to suggest in the very modern way of John Cage or Morton Feldman that music is all around us if we only care to listen to it. Let's hear the piece. This is Ensemble X, led by the late, great Stephen Stuckey, performing Musicians Wrestle Everywhere by Judith Weir.
That's music by Judith Weir. It's called Musicians Wrestle Everywhere. And she had already had the concept uh, to write a piece inspired by the sounds that she heard around her in her urban environment, which she takes pains to say is very different from what a classical composer would have heard in his environment, his semi-urban, you know, what they probably thought of as an urban environment, but uh, compared to a modern city, uh, nothing like what we hear in our environment. And then she came across this poem by Emily Dickinson, Musicians Wrestle Everywhere, in which she uh, basically suggests that everything that we hear is music. Uh, in her case, I think it's a kind of spiritual concept, but nonetheless, it is very similar to what John Cage was talking about. And uh, so uh, Judith Weir has a very provocative musical interpretation of that concept. Really like that piece a lot. 
I've got time for a little bit more music. I want to feature a couple of settings by the composer Lee Hoibee. And we're going to start with The Shining Place, uh, which I'll read a little bit of it. Me, come, my dazzled face, in such a shining place. Me, here, my foreign ear, the sounds of welcome, there. The saints forget our bashful feet. My holiday shall be that they remember me. My paradise, the fame that they pronounce my name. Uh, we heard a poem from Emily Dickinson in which she was talking about late bloomers. It seems clear to me that uh, though at, at one point she'd instructed, I believe, that all of her poems be destroyed after her death, she clearly thinks of herself as a great poet and uh, has a sense that people will read her, that her name will live on, as indeed it has. Let's hear the setting of this poem, The Shining Place, by Lee Hoiby. It's a setting of the poem, The Shining Place, by Emily Dickinson, music by Lee Hoiby, and we heard Judith Faulkner, soprano, being accompanied by Martha Fisher on piano. It's an intriguing idea, isn't it, that Emily Dickinson asked for her poetry to be destroyed at her death. Uh, her sister disregarded that, and, and I think that we're, we're better off, you know, in, in the world having the poetry of Emily Dickinson, but I, I was talking to my wife about it yesterday as I was uh, kind of uh, planning out this podcast and, and <laughs> boring her with the details. Uh, but, you know, it, it is interesting because she said, well, we should always um, follow the wishes of the artist. And, and that is true. I mean, the poems should have been destroyed. That's what Dickinson wanted. And yet in the poems themselves, she knows that they're excellent. She knows that uh, they deserve to be read. It, it seems to be something that really haunted her. Uh, she kind of uh, was out of style with her own time. And I, so I don't know. It's, it's a tough, uh, tough issue. I, I think that her sister was probably, I mean, history bears her out that uh, the poems have obviously stood the test of time. Emily Dickinson is now one of the great poets of all time, and, and I do think that it's good that, that we have the, the poetry, but it is definitely a, a, a thorny moral conundrum. Let's hear another setting by Lee Hoiby. This one is uh, the great poem, Wild Nights, Wild Nights. Were I with thee, wild nights should be our luxury. Futile the winds to a heart in port, done with the compass, done with the chart. Rowing in Eden, ah, the sea, 
might I but moor tonight in thee. Love that. We're done with the compass. We're done with the chart. We don't need to know where we're going. <laughs> uh, such a great sentiment. Wonderful love poem. Here are Judith Faulkner and Martha Fisher to perform. Wild Nights, another setting of a poem by Emily Dickinson by Lee Hoiby. Uh, we have time for one more, and uh, this time I'm going to go with a letter. This is also Lee Hoiby, uh, but this isn't a poem. This is a letter. Dickinson wrote a lot of letters, not surprisingly. In this case, it's to Thomas Wentworth Higgins, and it's from April 25th, 1862. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it and read my favorite part. She says, You ask of my companions, hills, sir, and the sundown, and a dog large as myself that my father bought me. They are better than beans, because they know but do not tell, and the noise in the pool at noon excels my piano." I like those lines very much, especially the idea that a simple pool, not a swimming pool, but a pool in nature, a simple pool of water that happens naturally can excel anything she can do at her piano, anything that we can create artistically. Not a new idea in Dickinson, of course. It is, in fact, a hallmark of the Romantic era to, uh, to talk about nature and, and the humblest gifts of nature excel the greatest works of art of humans. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's stated so simply, which is also a hallmark or such a hallmark of Dickinson in so many respects to take a lot of ideas that were swirling around and state them, well, better than most, <laughs> uh, certainly more succinctly, more simply. 
she, in, in, in a phrase or two, can somehow imbue those words with spirituality, with longing, with love, with uh, reverence, uh, like uh, or unlike anybody else, really, that I know. And uh, so, of course, it's, it's uh, inspired much, much great music. Uh, let's listen now to the last piece on the program. This is A Letter by Lee Hoiby, a setting of the letter I read part of. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening. to notice what we do.